Okay, now in recent years, uh, in various parts of the world, there have been a, a number of unfortunate deaths that have taken place in city zoos. Isn't that right? A lot of high-profile sort of unfortunate incidents happening in city zoos. I, I guess the story is, I looked at a few of these, the story is kind of the same a lot of the time, and you can see how it happens. The zookeeper will be placed in charge of uh, a big cat, a lion, or a tiger, something like that. And the zookeeper will start out in utter amazement and awe of this great creature, you know, the majesty of the beast, the power of the beast. Then what happens? Well, the zookeeper kind of clicks into cruise control because it's looking after the, the beast day in, day out, day in, day out. What happens slowly but surely in the zookeeper's eyes, the beast loses a little bit of the fear factor. Isn't that right? Uh, a, a little bit of the awe goes. And what happens? One day, one day, they let their guard down. They make a mistake, don't they? And unfortunately, some of them don't live to tell the tale. Friends, isn't that something that can very easily happen to the Christian before Almighty God? I think some of us in here tonight, we can look back in times of real joy and excitement in the Christian life, can we? We can look back maybe on times where, you know, we, we, we looked at God with, with awe. Isn't that right? With reverence for his majesty and, and for his power. Then what happened for some of us? We kind of clicked in a spiritual cruise control, didn't we? Uh, you know, just went into, you know, we just relaxed, took our foot off the gas a little bit. We're just in this routine of church, week in, week out, week in, week out. And what's happened now? We're, we're, we're looking at God and in our eyes, God's lost a bit the edge. Is that the case for some of us? We're, we're looking to God and see that healthy, reverent fear factor we should have as Christians before God. That's kind of departed as well for us. The reverence, the awe at God goes. And where do we find ourselves tonight? In a very dangerous spiritual predicament. Well, I think that's what's happening uh, with the people of Israel in First Samuel chapter 4. And I think because of that, we're going to learn a crucial lesson, one overarching lesson this evening, and that is recovering a renewed sense of God's holiness and his majesty and his splendor. Recovering that is crucial for our healthy, spiritual Christian walk. And I think we, we learn... There are two sub-points here. First of all, we learn the problem, or we see here, the problem of lucky charm theology. The problem of lucky charm theology. So what do I mean by that? Lucky charm theology. Well, I could say to you just now that, to throw away comment, I could say something like uh, the tone in First Samuel chapter 4, when we get into First Samuel chapter 4, the tone kind of changes from what we looked at before. But that's not enough to say that, is it? Like, don't you think, if you've been here for the sermon series thus far, the first Samuel chapter 4 is like reading a different book. Like the previous chapters, they've all been about who? It's no surprise who it's been about. It's been about Samuel and about Hannah. And what's true when you get into first Samuel chapter 4? Samuel's nowhere to be found. Like Samuel is not mentioned in this chapter, in the next few chapters. Nothing about Samuel, presumably, I think, because he's back. Remember, he was a boy. So I think he, for this, he's back in Shiloh, 
and he's just growing up. Okay, so the focus here is not on Samuel. What's it on? It's on the sort of military endeavors of the people of Israel. So you've got to see what's happened here. That a hostile nation, the Philistines, they've kind of moved in. They're threatening the western side of Israel, the western frontier of Israel. Tensions have kind of escalated, and now war has kind of broken out, and it's broken out about 20 miles, 22 miles west of Shiloh. Tell you what, let's do this. Let's narrow the focus down to what the elders say about the war. Would you do this with me? Would you look at verse 3? What do the elders say? So you get the idea now. There's a battle. 4,000 of the people of Israel have been killed. Now look at the question that the elders ask here. What do they ask? They say, why has the Lord defeated us? Are you with me when I say, that's quite an interesting question for them to ask, isn't it? Why is the Lord defeated? Like, you can see, can you not, that they, they understand that Yahweh is in control. Like, at least they get that, don't they? They, they understand that God is sovereign over this. Why is the Lord defeated? But what would you see from these people? Like, if they, if they know that God is against them, you would want to see some of that self-inquiry that we talked about this morning. Wouldn't you? God is set against me. Uh, uh, what is it, my sin? What is it that I am doing here? You see, now, do you get any of that self-assessment, self-inquiry here? Not a bit of it. Look what they want to do, verse 3. They want just to bring to battle the ark of God, the ark of the covenant. Let me speak to you for a moment, friends. Um, if you are part of the congregation here, have you read through First Samuel recently? Um, Boise and I, I think we're talking about this this week. It's a good practice. It's going to peak and make a lot of noise here. Okay. It's good practice, isn't it? If you're part of a congregation, read through to be familiar with the book that we're studying in the morning or in the evening in services. Have you done that? If you have then you know, you know that what we're dealing with here, the Ark of the Covenant of God, is going to play a critical role in the book of First Samuel, isn't it? If you know the book. So what is it? The Ark of the Covenant. Let's try and use our imagination. So the Ark of the Covenant was a, well, let's call it a medium-sized box, wooden box. So it's four by two by two. So it's not particularly big. It's gold-plated. Inside the Ark of the Covenant, you had copies of the Ten Commandments. We know that, don't we? And where did, where did the Ark reside? Resided in the most holy place. Now, here's the thing about the Ark. The Ark symbolized both the power and the presence of Almighty God. You see, like the Ark was a place where God promised that He would address, He would speak to His people in the Old Testament. But it was also the place of his presence. See, on the ark was a lid that was called the mercy seat. And that was really, throughout scripture, that was viewed as God's footstool. That God's throne was kind of seen to come up, spiritually speaking, from the ark, to ascend up from the ark. Do you see what I'm saying? Symbolically, it was the place of God's power and his presence. And when you understand that, 
Isn't it amazing what happens here? Look again at verse 3. Now, why did the people want the ark? Look at this. Look what they say. They don't mention God, really. It's not, they're not concerned about God. What They say, basically, let's get the ark so that it, the ark, can save us. So do you see what's happening here? They're focusing on the ark and not on the majesty of Almighty God. Do you see what they're doing? They're in the ark just like it's a lucky charm. They're basically saying, can somebody go back and get the rabbit's foot for battle? Can somebody go and get that horseshoe? Somebody go and get the ark. Do you see they want to try and manipulate God to try force him to act on their behalf. You see, lucky charm theology. Now, when we try and apply that, I think there's a real danger. And I think the danger is we apply this to other people, maybe even to the Catholic Church. See, I, a few years ago when I was a bit younger, I went on a trip uh, with a few students, an organized trip in, into Europe. And I remember a lassie, a girl that was there as part of it. Um, I remember that she, when she was abroad, she bought rosary beads. And I'm telling you, she, she loved those rosary beads and she, she kept those rosary beads with her. You know, the beads that I'm talking about with the little crucifix on the edge. Now, you see that? That was her ark. For her, you see, that was her lucky charm and she carried them with her. Why? Because she thought just by having this thing, she could manipulate God. She could bend God for God working just for her, but God would keep her safe. Why? Because she had silly little beads in her hand. And when we apply this, don't we do that? Don't we? Isn't there a danger we look at other people? There's a uncomfortable truth though. I think you and I, I think very often we make the same mistake as 1 Samuel chapter 4. Now, you think about this honestly for yourself. Have you never asked this question? Have you never said this to yourself on a Sunday afternoon? I cannot be bothered going to church tonight. But I'm going to go because I want things to go well for me this coming week. Or the Bible, first thing in the morning. Can't bother reading my Bible, but I'm gonna, I'll just, I'll read a quick verse because I want things to go well for me later today. You see, treating this place, treating scripture just like it's our, our lucky charm. We can do these things just so we can try and get God to work things for our benefit. Now you see, surely that, that is, that's, that's not the attitude we should have. But what should be your attitude? Well, look at verse 4. Look at how your God is described in verse 4. He is the Lord of hosts. Do you see a, a title that speaks to his grandeur and his power? And carry on, look, he is the one who is enthroned on the cherubim, speaking to his sovereignty. Do you see it? You and I have to recapture something of the sense of the glory and the majesty of God. Friends, we're not to be looking at cultic objects, not religious practices. You and I have to get back to seeking the glory of God, seeking his splendor, looking to him. The people here, what do they do? 
They put their trust in an object. They look to lucky charms. And as we go on in the chapter, we will see that, oh, that is a very dangerous mistake to make. The second thing that we see here is the possibility of late in the day renewal. So we've seen the problem of lucky charm theology. Secondly, the possibility of late in the day renewal. You can imagine this week has not been the brightest week in my life wrestling with this chapter. Because this chapter, you're agreeing with me that it is. It's bleak, this, isn't it? I mean, it is, it is. It's one of the, I think one of the darkest portions in, in all of scripture. Now, I was sitting at home and, and, and wrestling with it and, and looking at it and, do you know, from verse 10 onwards, all you're dealing with are various instances of death. Right through the chapter, it is one instance of death after another here. Do you see what I mean? Like you've got, first of all, you've got the death of the soldiers. Because what do they do? The elders want the ark, so they go and get the ark. And they bring the ark into battle. What happens? That just rejuvenates the enemy. So the Philistines are stirred up. What do they do? They rout the people of Israel. Did you see the figure? 30,000 of God's people killed in battle. So the soldiers are killed. Then did you notice even the priests are massacred? Because who's going to bring the ark from Shiloh? Think about earlier in the book. Who's going to bring it? It's going to be Hophni and Phineas, Eli's sons, isn't it? What do they do? They bring the ark into battle and... They are slaughtered. They are murdered. What does that do? Fulfills God's promise of judgment on Eli's line. And you, you have to be pretty cold. You've got to be pretty hard to heart if you weren't moved by the end of this chapter. And Phineas's wife. I mean, you see what, what happens here? She's a pregnant woman. Imagine the excitement and the expectancy, a child coming. And she hears the news of this great defeat. And what happens? It looks like, I think, that she she goes into labor prematurely and she dies giving birth to the baby. And it's, it's, it's bad, but then isn't the bleakness just... Isn't it there just when we see that she lives long enough to name the baby? What does she name him? Echobot, the glory has departed. I mean, man, it's dark, isn't it? And he makes like Scandinavian noir look like naughty or... I mean, it is though, isn't it? It's, it's really, really dark. And just when we're the depths of this, I'm thinking we're wrestling through this and we're thinking, what? I mean, where's the hope here? There is. There is a ray of light in the most unexpected place because who else dies in this portion of scripture? Soldiers die, priests die, Phineas' wife dies. Who else dies? Eli dies. Now, when you think about his death, what, what do you think? Like you see a messenger, there's the battle, there's the defeat. The messenger runs back 22 miles, back to Shiloh. He comes to Eli. Eli, this 98-year-old man who is blind, he, what happens? He falls off his seat. And it, what do you think? It's the most, do you think it's the most undignified end there is? Do you? Yeah, maybe. But I'm telling you, there's 
there's a beautiful instance of grace here. Because I'm asking you, if you were here for the sermon series, what was Eli's sin? Do you remember? A couple of chapters ago. You're maybe going to say to me, he ate too much of the sacrifices. Do you remember that? With Hophni and Phinehas, he would steal too much. Of the... Would you say that? Maybe. But how did God verbalize his sin? What was the accusation that God made against Eli? You ready for it? I'll read it to you. God looked at Eli and said, Why do you honor your sons above me? Now, come on, back here, what is it that causes Eli's death in this bit? Look at verse 18. Have a look at verse 18. What causes his death? Like you Remember, he's just heard that Hophni and his sons, they value so much more than God before. They've just died. What is it? What, called, what upsets him so much? It's not his sons, is it? What is it? He falls off when he hears about the Ark of the Covenant being captured. Do you see what's happening here? There has been this monumental reversal, a spiritual renewal in Eli's life. He has gone from that situation of valuing his sons over God to late in life. What's happening now? He values God above everything else. It is all about the ark. It is all about God's glory. It is all about zeal for the Almighty. God has reset his spiritual priorities right at the end of his life. Isn't it marvelous? And I think in that, there's your real light. There's your hope. So what is it with you tonight? Is it that you've been a Christian for quite a long time? Many years now. And is it the case that you're in the wilderness spiritually? Like you're dry. You're just struggling through as a Christian. And are you thinking that is how it will always be for you? Look at Eli. Listen to the message from Eli. Spiritual refreshment for you. It is possible. By God's grace, spiritual renewal for you is possible. This sort of reversal can happen in your life and my life. If we look to God, even this week, and if we're studying, and if we are prayerful, if we seek his face, he can get our priorities right. And he can fill your heart with zeal and fervor and passion for the glory and honor of his name. That's what he did with Eli right at the end. And that's what he can do with you and me. So we see the problem of lucky charm theology. We see the possibility, praise God, of late in the day renewal. And then the last thing, and it is the purpose behind large-scale calamity. Purpose. Follow this. I was chatting to somebody about uh, preaching and preaching techniques this past week. We got together and had a coffee, and uh, this person I was speaking to was talking about some of the big-name preachers that have been in London over the years. And he's talking about the sort of techniques that they use in preaching, and it was just all new to me. I had no idea about any of this. But he said it was quite famous that, or quite well known, that they had special devices in, in preaching, that what they would do, some of them, two in particular, they would stumble around in preaching, trying to find words, 
And it was all just an act. It was all, it was all just deliberate. It was a device to try and make sure that people were listening. You know? Just this device, just acting, just trying to stumble about, fumble about in the words and, I'm sure it's quite effective. I don't do that when when I stumble about in my words. It is me stumbling about and it's not deliberate. I don't do that, but what I might do is ask rhetorical questions in a sermon. I think by asking questions, it helps you and me to wrestle with what God is saying. And I want to do that here as we come in to end. Because I want to pose this question to you. Why does Almighty God... First Samuel 4 to happen. Now you see the legitimacy of the question, do you? I mean, it's so dark. And by the end here, the ark is captured and his people are defeated. They are demoralized, aren't they, the people of Israel by the end? And God, this is the thing about it. God seems to be utterly dishonored. By the end here. I mean, the, the ark is captured to the people around, to the nations. God, Yahweh must have looked so impotent. You know, you think powerless. He can't even keep possession of his own ark. So why does he allow this to happen? Well, if you know the next couple of chapters of 1 Samuel, you know the answer. What did Phineas's wife call her? What did she call her boy? What was it? Ichabod. What did it mean? The glory had departed. Was she right? Had the glory departed? What happens in the next few chapters? God is going to act in power and might and majesty. And God is to return that ark triumphantly back to the people of Israel. And here's the thing. What is that ark going to return to? It's going to return to a people who are renewed because of these terrible events. Do you understand? That because of these awful events here, the people are going to want to glorify God from here on in because of what they've endured here. And what's going to happen because of these events? What's God done? He's cleansed them of wicked leadership. Hophni's dead. Phineas is dead. Those wicked men who, who abused temple service, they're gone. Do you see God has used this calamity, but actually he has used it for the benefit of his people. And I, I could, could sit here, we could apply this to you. The fact that when something terrible hits your life, you know this one thing. God is sovereign over it and he's using it for your benefit. We could apply that and draw it out. I don't want to. I want to end like this. I want to point you to the death of Jesus. I wonder if you see the similarity between 1 Samuel 4 and that moment that your Lord's eyes closed in death. When his head hung on that cross. Do you see the similarity? What would those people around Jesus have thought? Those ones who, who loved him, who were weeping and mourning at his death. They surely would have thought, the glory has departed. Wouldn't they? They've looked at that cross and seen the place of the power and the presence of Almighty God. And they surely would have thought he has been captured by the enemy of death.
the enemy of sin and Satan. What's the other great similarity? As we go on in First Samuel, that wasn't it. That the Lord Jesus Christ would return. He would return in splendor and triumph in resurrection life. And why was there this calamity? Why the calamity of the cross? All for the spiritual benefit of the people of God. Friends, I think we read this, which is a dark passage of Scripture. And we can rejoice. You can rejoice tonight. You can rejoice that your God is a covenant God and a God of grace. I'll give you something to take home. You can rejoice in the fact that First Samuel chapter 4, if you're a Christian, will never happen to you. Because of what Christ has done in his death and resurrection, because he has ascended to the right hand of God, because he has imparted to you the Holy Spirit, for you, no matter where you are, no matter where this life takes you, no matter how dark things seem, the glory for the people of God will now never depart. What has Christ promised his church? I will never leave you, never forsake you. What do you know? What can you grasp with both hands as you go out of this building? Christ has said to his church, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. The glory will not depart. Let's pray.